Scripture reading this morning is out of Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30 through 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking a child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not, not only welcome me, but the one who sent me. Good morning. Am I on? Jack, can you hear me? We good? Okay. All right. Well, grace and peace to you all. May the spirit of the resurrected Christ be with us this morning as we gather as family. There are many themes that come from our lectionary text this morning. It's hard to choose which one to sort of uh, go, go for. Uh, and there might be a point in the sermon this morning where you're like, where is Eric going? Well, <laughs> uh, greatness, fear, least of these, placemaking, children, all sort of uh, play into this. And so where will this end up? Well, hopefully like a good Seinfeld episode, it'll come together in the end. Uh, but let's start here this morning. Uh, this past Wednesday, uh, at the elders uh, team meeting, uh, I read a short devotional about Jesus and his disciples. And I want to begin with this because I think it fits with what we're going to talk about today. So this comes from Peter Rollins. He is an Irish um, Christian philosopher and theologian, and he wrote uh, a short book uh, with 30 parables in it. So I want to uh, read this this morning. One day, a small group of disciples who had embraced the way of Jesus early in his ministry heard him preaching by the side of a dusty road. As they crowded around, around him, they heard Jesus say, The law requires that you carry a pack one mile for one mile, but I say carry it freely for two. The disciples were deeply impressed by these words, for at that time, Roman soldiers had the legal right to demand that a, a citizen carry his pack for a mile for service to the empire. The teaching was not, uh, uh, this teaching was not only, allowed, or not only allowed the disciples to turn this oppressive law into an opportunity, uh, opportunity to, to demonstrate kingdom values, but also presented them with an opportunity to suffer in some small way for their faith. As it was common for soldiers to evoke this law, the small band of believers soon developed a reputation for their actions. Roman soldiers would often hope that the citizens they would ask to carry their packs would be among the disciples. And often, a small bond of friendship would develop between a soldier and these followers of the way. After a year had passed, the custom had become so established uh, within the group that it became a defining characteristic of their shared life. The leaders would frequently refer to the teacher's teaching of Jesus and emphasize the need to carry a pack of a Roman soldier for two miles 
as a sign of one's faith and commitment to God. It so happened that Jesus heard about this community's work and on his way to Jerusalem, took time to visit them. The leaders eagerly gathered all the members of the group to hear what Jesus would say. Once everyone had gathered, Jesus addressed them. Dear brothers and sisters, you are faithful and honest, but I have come to give you a second message. For you failed to understand the first. Your law says that you must carry a pack for two miles. I say, carry it for three. It's an interaction with this story that we need to ask whether the, whether the scriptures really offer us concrete ethical answers that can be turned into some religious code of conduct or whether Jesus was actually opening up a radically different approach to living. Go two miles became the law. Right? While the ethical individual does what is required, the lover moves beyond the basic requirement. To put this in concrete terms, if a law tells that one ought to give a certain amount of money to charity, 10%, the one who loves, the one who loves those who are poor will give more than what is required. The radical way of Jesus provides a much more difficult challenge than what is demanded by the law. For while the law gives a bottom line way to live, the way of love calls us beyond the law. Okay? So we have here the disciples, this teaching of Jesus to go a second mile. The disciples then, oh, well, that's what we'll do. We'll go a second mile. And then Jesus comes back and it says, you have focused on this new law and not the spirit of the law. You could say that the disciples had missed it. They had missed maybe the idea or why, the point of it all. When we read the Gospel of Mark and track the interactions of the disciples, these early 12 followers of the way, and if you were to make a movie just based off the, movie, uh, the Gospel of Mark, maybe you would call it Adventures in Missing the Point. Okay? This is the disciples. Such a common theme in Mark. And here again we have, just like last week, Jesus once again predicting his death. And after predicting his death, what did the disciples begin to do? They begin to argue on who is the greatest. We see a disciple's failure to understand but this time, it does not bring rebuke from Jesus, as last week, but a teaching moment and a learning moment for the disciples. Worthy of note, this interaction is about children. Mark chapter 9. One of the things is it's about children. In Mark chapter 10, turn the page, verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Of course he was indignant. <laughs> he just got done saying one chapter before, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It is super, super easy for us sitting here this morning to say those disciples, they just don't 
get it. It's so easy for us to do that. Not understanding Jesus again, off concerned about the things that simply don't matter in God's economy. Jesus, before saying, are you so dull? Do you not understand? Don't you just get it? Have you ever had this thought about the disciples? Let me share a quote from Charles Kozar, uh, who writes um, some commentary on this. He, he, he says, next slide, the real problem with the disciples is that they are all too easily, they all too easily become mirrors in which readers see themselves. Their failures and their lack of understanding typify the patterns of successive generations, which would be us, who are slow to get the point and who persist in setting their minds on human things instead of divine things. Ouch. So as we proceed here this morning, just an invitation, two questions to invite us to consider as we proceed. In what way or ways do you see yourself in the faces of the disciples? Another question, in what ways have I experienced failure or lack of understanding? Just like these disciples. It is so easy to project our own experience onto those of the disciples, isn't it? And not really owning the ways that we have been there. But I am grateful, I am thankful that Jesus does not leave these early followers in their ignorance. In this story, he is patient. He is kind. And he brings them to a deeper understanding at their own pace. And Jesus desires to do that with us as well. So, in Mark 9, verse 30, the text again says this. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus' ministry is not one that's easily understood. Amen? Right? The disciples, or me, or you, when we don't know what's going to happen now or into the future, what's a word that starts with F that we think? Fear. We fear. We fear the unknown. The disciples, me, perhaps you, are unsure and do not understand the kingdom of God. Let us hold that possibility, because I think we have all been there. Have you ever experienced this fear as you follow Jesus? A fear that originates from lack of understanding. We've all been there, I think, due to fear. It's in that place of fear, that it's, it's a place where we simply can't accept the facts, can't accept our present circumstances, can't face what's right in front of us, This all because of fear perhaps was looming just below the surface for the disciples. Maybe can't accepting that Jesus, 
who's got the best ministry they've ever seen, his teaching, the miracles, the miracles, <laughs> again, saying that he's going to die. That's not the right way to go, Jesus. They are afraid. The last time someone said no to this, that person, Peter, was called Satan. What's unique about this second prediction of his death is that it's not just about pain and suffering and death, but what's unique is that he adds something. He said that there's, this time, betrayal. There's a betrayal that's going to happen. All right? And in order for be, to be betrayed, the source of that betrayal has to be someone whom he cares about, someone that he formerly trusted. Otherwise, it wouldn't be just a betrayal, it would be just some, somehow that's the way the world works. But there's, there's something in verse 31 I want to go back to. Have you ever wondered why the disciples didn't really pick up on the last part? And after these, after three days, will rise. It's like, did they just miss that part? Right? There's pain and suffering, but the three days kind of reminds me of this chicken. <laughs> Bad news, Leonard. You've been cut from the team, and we're going to pluck, clean, and roast you in, or- in tangy orange sauce. What? I've been cut from the team? <laughs> the chicken missed the message. <laughs> the chicken has missed the point. Right? What? <laughs> Say it ain't so. The disciples are concerned about the suffering and dying, and they're also concerned about who is the greatest. And they may have just missed on the third day would rise again. Jesus does, in fact, say that. But fear works in this way, doesn't it? Fear does this to us. Fear can consume. Fear can limit our vision. Fear can smother imagination. Fear can make us powerless. Fear can destroy possibility. What we know, all of us in this room, on this side of the resurrection, is that Jesus conquers fear in the only way possible, by trusting in the love and the mercy and the goodness of God. The only way through this fear was a deep trust in the love and mercy and goodness of God. So a question, in our fears, do we hear that resurrection is possible? In our fears, are we aware or attentive to the new life that is to be experienced? Resurrection. Or does fear cloud that? Does fear get in the way of that? They were afraid. The disciples were afraid. Continuing on in verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who is the greatest or who was the greatest. Adventures in missing the point. We're back to this title. Who is the greatest? This question still exists today. Amen. Muhammad Ali would say, I am the greatest. Trump wants to make America great again. LeBron, greatness. Chicago Bears, not so great. Hey, hey, grace, 
Oh, I should show grace. I should show grace. It's not grace to me. It's grace. Okay. <laughs> Who, just seeing if we're awake. That's all we're doing. Okay. Who is the greatest? How is greatness measured? What constitutes greatness? We come to find out that these disciples, or me, or you, not only are confused about this death and suffering, what that means for Jesus, but a bit clueless on what it means for someone to be great. They are confused about greatness as well, and maybe we are confused. Ever wonder what the conversation was like among the disciples, right, about this greatness talk? Well, I've spent the most time with them. I was called to be a disciple first. I was there on top of the mountain for the transfiguration. Only three could say that. I'm referred to the beloved disciple in the gospel that I will write one day. <laughs> right? That's John, right? So what's underneath this question? Who was the greatest? So whether we ask it out loud or silently to ourselves, okay, just like the disciples, it's a question that we want to know. We do want to know. It's, it's an honest question. It's an honest question. What's underneath this question? Who is the greatest? Um, is there something deeper going on here? Well, in reflecting upon this whole interaction between Jesus and the disciples, or just amongst the disciples, right, maybe it's a question of, about place. Is there a place for me? Who is the greatest? Where's my place? Where do I stack up? Who am I? It's a question of place. Is there a place for me in my family? Is there a place for me in my church? Is there a place for me in my organization, in my business? Is there a place for me? Is there a place for me and my race? Is there a place for my gender? Is there a place for my lifestyle, my politics, my beliefs about the divine? Is there a place for me and my people? Is there a place for my tradition? Who is the greatest? Is there a place for me? Whether it's taught or it's caught, I think we learn that we need to make a place for ourselves. Right? As we look throughout history, it's those with place these are the greatest. Those with power, those with resources, those with position, those with um, wealth, educated, the powerful, having status, possession. As you look through history, it's those, they have place. And just speaking truth, for most of history, the great ones also have been light-skinned, male, heterosexual, and almost always adults. Almost always adults. This isn't wrong in and of itself until it is wrong. Until we use this to occupy a place at the exclusion of others. Until we focus inward and no longer see our neighbor. 
until we are the center of our world. And those who might trespass in our place, those who want to maybe take our place, what do we do with these? We cast them out, we push them out, we evict them from our place. Because when placemakers argue about who is the greatest, conflict comes. The counterintuitive, the upside-down kingdom, is the opposite, about, opposite of making a, a place for ourselves. But rather, it's in the making a place for others that we discover our place. It's in the making of, uh, it's in the making of place for others that we discover our own place. This is what Jesus models for us. It's what he's teaching us in the gospel today. Point is, Jesus is not impressed with this argument. And he says, whoever wants to be first, that is, whoever wants to be the greatest, must be last and a servant to all, a servant of all. This isn't as harsh as the rebuke of last week, being called Satan. But this would have shocked the disciples nonetheless. Again, we assume greatness is equal to power. We assume it's equal to accomplishment, fame, wealth, influence. But this is not what Jesus had in mind at all. Because in verse 36, he says this. Or it's, the story goes, He took a little child, whom he placed on, uh, among them, taking the child into his arms and said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So what Jesus does now is that he takes them deeper into what it means to be a servant to all. He reaches out to a little child and describes what greatness is like. Whoever welcomes a child welcomes him and welcomes his father. In a first century world, children not treated as we know them to be treated today. Children were of no value in the present. In the future, they could be when they can begin to work. Parents did love their children in, in the ancient world. They loved their children. But uh, children had no rights, no influence, no standing in society. They were completely dependent completely vulnerable, completely powerless. We didn't have this sentimental, you know, innocence and cuteness and all that. I mean, I'm sure they were cute. The child in, in the arms of Jesus is the opposite of greatness. That is the point. How they viewed children. A child in the arms of Jesus was the opposite of greatness. So Jesus himself takes, um, uh, like, uh, makes himself like a little child so that when we too welcome and receive you know, children into our arms, we receive him. As we make a place for others, we open ourselves up not just to the other, but we open ourselves up to Christ. We open up ourselves to our Father. Jesus says that caring for them is greatness. Christ himself, was a placemaker, but in a different kind of way. The child represents the least and the last. What if we, along with Jesus, 
imagined that greatness wasn't about power. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't about likes on Facebook. But it's measured by how we share with one another. But the greatness is measured by the love that we have for one another. Greatness is how much we submit to one another, how we serve one another. I think the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Christ is inviting us to true greatness in service as we take care of those who are the most vulnerable. Those with little influence, those with little power, those on the margins. We are already placemakers in some way. We are. We're placemakers. The question is, the question is, are we working to make a place for ourselves in the world? Or are we creating place for others? Are we making space for others? The least and the lost. The last. We already have an answer to this question, honestly. We've already answered it by how we make place in our homes, how we make place, uh, how we make place, uh, places in our business, in our schools, as we run errands, as we have conversation with and about others. Do we make place for ourselves or for the other? If you want a place in this life, create 